basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. OMP? Go. AFC? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. In our story so far, we've followed the Gemini program right up until the end of 1965, as Jim Lovell and Frank Borman stepped out onto the deck of the carrier USS Wasp on the 18th of December, 1965. So it seems like maybe a good time to take a look around and put the Gemini program in context, not only within NASA and the space program, but maybe a bit the wider world as well. I mean, what was the state of the world as the calendar flipped from 1965 to 1966? It's funny, when I started doing the research for this episode, I really started by just looking at a list of big events for 1965, and what struck me was that it kind of felt like um, 1965 was actually the year when the 1960s really got started. I mean, of course, that's particularly true for me, since it was the year in which everything got started for me, since it's the year I was born. But what I mean is that a lot of the uh, iconic events that we typically associate with the 1960s through either memory or lack thereof, I mean, what's the line? If you remember the 60s, you weren't really there. Either through memory or through images handed down to us about that time, um, a lot of it really, it seems, got started in 1965. 1965, for instance, was really the year that the Vietnam War um, really got going. And by, by that, I mean 1965 was when the United States really became fully, truly militarily involved in the fighting of the war itself. But it was also the year in which opposition to the war, which is another defining image of the 60s, let's face it, really got going as well. It was also the year when the civil rights movement in the U.S. really started gaining national prominence. And those are very North American-centric images, I know. But I do think that they are also iconic of what the 60s has come to represent in terms of turning away from the post-World War II era and towards something new and all of the cultural upheaval that went with it. And that shift to a new reality uh, was actually present in other events in 1965. 1965 was the year of Vatican II, which, while mostly important to the world's Catholics, really did mark a major shift in thinking and in thought for an institution that had, until that time, been more or less the epitome of looking backward and not forward. Vatican II changed all that, and the vibrations of it are actually still being felt today. In addition to the war in Southeast Asia that was gaining momentum, 1965 was also a year in which new political realities began to assert themselves in the rest of Asia, realities that would become standard facts of life in fairly short order. China began to emerge from seclusion after the Communist Revolution being proposed for membership in the UN for the first time in 1965. India and Pakistan fought a war, and India and China threatened to. Japan began to emerge as an economic force to be reckoned with. Tokyo became the largest city in the world, supplanting New York. So even though 1968 is kind of remembered as the year of revolution, the heart of the 60s and the forces that collided then were largely unleashed in 1965, at least it seems to me. 
1965 was, in some ways, a year in which humanity's journey off the planet entered a new era as well. In addition to the progress on human spaceflight that I'll talk about in a minute, there were some other important developments in 1965. 1965 saw the launch of the first commercial communication satellite. It saw the first flyby of another planet by its spacecraft when Mariner 4 flew past Mars. And it saw the first launch of a spacecraft that would land on another planet when the Soviets launched Venera 1. It saw the first comprehensive photo survey of another celestial body when Ranger 8 surveyed the moon before crashing into it. It also saw the almost routine launch of science, weather, and communications and other um, restricted satellites by the two space powers. It also saw the first launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile, missile from a submarine. And it saw the first orbital launch by a country other than the United States or the USSR when France launched Asterix 1. Now, France was the third nation to launch uh, a rocket, but the fourth nation to put a satellite in orbit. The third nation in space, of course, was Canada, and Canada also saw the launch of its second satellite, Alouette 2, in 1965. In short, 1965 featured almost all of the space activities that would become pretty routine events in the 1970s. So again, it very much feels like 1965 was a year in which a line had been crossed from a time when going to space was the stuff of science fiction to a time when, well, it might not be routine, it was certainly um, unremarkable. All of which is even more impressive when you realize that in 1965, it was barely 20 years since the first vehicle capable of leaving the Earth's atmosphere had taken flight. And of course, the man responsible for that initial development, Werner von Braun, was still very much in the thick of the space race, and we'll talk about that more in a minute too. But speaking of the space race, as we can see by 1965, uh, human activity off the planet had spread out to include much more than simply sending humans there for short visits. By 1965, activity in space encompassed many of the activities that have been and continue to be mainstays of the space economy, including telecommunications, Earth observation, uh, although the focus of Earth observation was uh, mainly scientific and military, rather than commercial in 1965, and also unmanned or robotic exploration of the solar system. But still, the brightest star in the human space activity firmament was human spaceflight, which dominated not only the public imagination, but also the efforts of the space agencies of the time. Because, of course, in 1965, activity in space was almost entirely funded by national space agencies, though there was a small and rapidly growing commercial interest, particularly in satellite communications. And while other countries, such as France and Canada, were beginning to participate in humanity's journey off the planet, the vast majority of the effort was still being expended by only two countries, the United States and the Soviet Union. Because, of course, those two countries were very much engaged in the space race, as it is often referred to then as now. And while the race was now, in 1965, largely being run between the two countries' civil space programs, the initial competition had been, and still was to a large extent, the product of the wider arms race between the two superpowers. When the Soviets had launched Sputnik, it had not only been a technological embarrassment to the United States, it had also been very much a military threat, 
a statement that the Soviet Union could put an object over any point on the planet and with the unspoken and occasionally actually explicitly spoken corollary being that they could land an object at any point on the planet, and since that object could be a nuclear weapon, it was a serious threat. Without the ability to match that capability, the United States saw itself as being seriously at risk. Yuri Gagarin's first human orbit of the Earth had only solidified this American concern. Now the Soviets had proven that they could fly a Soviet citizen and a military officer to boot over American territory anytime they wanted to. NASA and Project Mercury had largely been created to answer this threat, and thus the space race was kicked off in earnest. And we have talked a fair bit about how things looked from the American side of that race. But what were the Soviets uh, literally up to in space in 1965? Well, as I mentioned a bit earlier, the Soviet space program, like NASA, had moved beyond uh, focusing just on human spaceflight. They were spending a fair bit of effort building their own cosmos, that's with a K, satellites that were combined weather and communication satellites. They had been continuing their own unmanned solar exploration program that in 1965 was targeted in typical fashion in the direction opposite to NASA's. While NASA sent the Mariner probes outward to Mars, the Soviets developed the Venera program to investigate Venus. In addition to those efforts, of course, the Soviet human spaceflight program had also continued in 1965. Now, unlike the American program, and maybe largely unbeknownst to observers in the West or really to anyone outside of the higher echelons of the Soviet space program itself, the Soviet human space program was not exactly accelerating to or beyond orbit in 1965. In fact, the Soviet program was mired in wasteful bureaucratic wrangling and had actually been since fairly soon after its initial successes. Because while the initial Soviet space program had benefited from the patronage of Joseph Stalin and then from focused effort under its chief designer, Viktor Korolev, its initial success had led to bureaucratic jealousies, that led to creation of multiple design bureau, each with their own chief designers and their own supporters within the party apparatus. The net result was a lack of focus that meant that the Soviet program had started to lose momentum almost immediately after its initial high-profile successes. The fact was well hidden because of the secrecy surrounding the program, but the fact of the matter was that after an initial two flights in rapid succession in 1961, there was a year's hiatus before a Soviet cosmonaut again made it into space. This was in large part because of competition for launch facilities between the Vostok human space program and the Zenit military satellite development effort. Also, the delay resulted, at least partially, from the Soviets' alarm over German Titov's almost complete debilitation during his flight from what we now call space adaptation syndrome. When NASA got John Glenn and then Scott Carpenter to orbit in February and June of 1962, the Soviets had lost their lead in terms of number of orbital spaceflights, and although they still led in terms of total time on orbit, it seemed like NASA was certainly catching up. The pressure to respond eventually cleared away the bureaucratic obstacles, and the Soviets again set a first by launching two spacecraft in rapid succession in August of 1962. Vostok 3 and 4 were actually a direct response to Titov's flight in that they were an attempt to fly two humans at the same time 
in very similar orbits to compare their reactions to being on orbit. The dual launch put the Soviets back in the lead of the space race, at least as far as the rest of the world could tell, but they were clearly starting to run out of wind. It would be almost another year before the Soviets flew again, and once again Vostok 5 and 6 were designed to allow the Soviet Union to claim leadership in space by having two spacecraft on orbit at the same time, setting a record for the longest space flight, uh, which was Vostok 5, at a little under five days, and putting the first woman into space when Valentina Tereshkova launched aboard Vostok 6. Again, this seemed to imply that the Soviets were continuing to build their lead in space. Unknown outside the Soviet space program, however, was that even at this point the Soviets had still not actually completed a full human space mission from launch to landing, since the cosmonauts did not actually land in their spacecraft, instead they parachuted to safety once the capsule had re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. It would not be until the fall of 1964 when a Soviet cosmonaut completed a full round trip to space and back in their spacecraft when Voshkod-1 flew in October which was also the first flight of a spacecraft with more than one crew aboard. The Soviets again managed to claim a first when the Alexei Leonov left his Voshkod-2 spacecraft for the very first spacewalk in March of 1965. But that was really the last gasp of the initial Soviet human spaceflight program. Despite having stated ambitions of competing with NASA to get to the moon first, the Soviets would not fly another human to space for almost three years. Meanwhile, in 1965 alone, NASA had flown five times, erasing the Soviet records for most flights, most humans sent to orbit, and most time spent there, both at one time and in total. In 1966, NASA would repeat the feat, flying five more times. It would not be until October of 1968 that another Russian successfully left the planet and returned safely. By then, the question of who was winning the space race had largely been settled in NASA's favor. But from where NASA stood as the year 1966 began, the race was not settled at all. Although by that time, uh, most at NASA were beginning to suspect that they were in the lead, the question was by no means settled. Ed White's spacewalk, within a few weeks of Leonov's, had demonstrated that if NASA was behind, it was not by much. Then the long-duration flight of Gemini 5 had almost doubled the previous Soviet record, and then Gemini 7 had doubled that again within a few months. And finally, of course, the Gemini 67 mission uh, had allowed NASA to claim the very first rendezvous of spacecraft on orbit, which, as we have seen, was a feat that represented significant organizational and operational maturity, as well as being a technical achievement. And, of course, the Gemini program was by no means all that was going on at NASA in terms of human spaceflight. In fact, by the turn of the year 1966, Gemini was not really even the principal focus of that effort, if it had ever been, frankly. Uh, that was the funny thing about Gemini, was that it was the second NASA program to launch humans into space, but it was forever, and forever will be, effectively the third wheel of NASA programs. Because, of course, the Mercury program came first, and Apollo, although it would fly later than Gemini, had actually been set up more than a year before Gemini had arrived on the scene. Because Apollo had actually not started out as an effort to go to the moon. Apollo had actually 
been set up to be the successor program to Mercury because the limitations of Mercury, the compromises that it had had to accept in order to make getting to orbit a priority, um, had actually been pretty obvious to everybody inside NASA at the beginning. So there had always been a community at NASA that had wanted to think beyond the limited goals of Mercury. And Apollo had been the project that had been set up to consider where NASA should go once Mercury had been accomplished. Apollo uh, had also been, let's face it, a bit of a way of keeping Werner von Braun and his ex-paper clippers in Alabama busy, because remember the group in Huntsville, uh, at what became the Marshall Space Flight Center, had been kind of grafted onto NASA after it had been launched with Project Mercury in mind. And while Mercury had initially used the Marshall-designed Redstone rocket, uh, it had moved on to the Atlas rocket, rocket, and the group at Marshall had moved on uh, to Von Braun's lifelong dream of building a booster that was truly capable of getting humans not only off of, but away from the planet. All of which coalesced in May of 1961, when President Kennedy had spoken in Congress and set the goal of getting to the moon and back. And while these remarks are less famous than his speech at Rice University in 1962, they did provide clear direction about what the Apollo program should be doing. And as we discussed, Apollo immediately lifted its sights beyond Earth orbit, which, in the end, led to the opening into which Gemini stepped at the end of the year. But in the intervening years, while Gemini had been surfacing and then sinking, some of the more prosaic aspects of getting to and working in space, Apollo had been planning, designing, and building the hardware that would eventually go to the moon. And this was, of course, a much bigger endeavor, not only because of the scale of the problem was simply larger, it was also another order of complexity, because unlike Gemini, Apollo was building a brand new booster designed specifically for Apollo. And of course, that booster would end up being the largest rocket that humans had or have ever launched. And of course, the development of the Saturn rocket is a topic that deserves and hopefully will eventually have its own whole series of episodes here on Terranauts. For now, it's enough to say that uh, as 1965 became 1966, the first iteration of that booster, the Saturn 1B, was in the final stages of preparing for its first flight, which would eventually occur at the end of February. And while this first launch was not a crewed mission, it was the beginning of Apollo's flight program which meant that Gemini was no longer the flight program at NASA. And that meant that Gemini was not just sharing engineering and program resources at NASA, uh, which it had been doing since the beginning. It also meant that the two groups whose attention it had more or less monopolized in the beginning were now increasingly being dedicated to the Apollo program as well. And these two groups were, of course, the astronauts and the flight operations directorate. Now, these two groups uh, had both undergone huge transitions in the four years in which Gemini had been fighting its way to orbit. When Gemini was announced, there were still only seven NASA astronauts, the original Mercury 7. These had been joined by nine more astronauts, known as the Next Nine, in the first year of Gemini in the summer of 1962. And this group had been intimately involved in the Gemini program as it developed, and several of this class had already flown on Gemini, and all of them eventually would, and some like Jim Lovell more than once. A year later, in the fall of 1963, another 14 astronauts had been added, known publicly as the 14, although inside the astronaut community they were also known as the FNGs, 
Um, 14 new guys, except that, of course, some of you may recognize that there's another version of that expression. It doesn't refer to the number 14. None of that group had yet flown on Gemini, although five of them eventually would, uh, all, including Buzz Aldrin, who had already made a massive contribution to the process of learning how to do rendezvous and docking, and would also make another major contribution to understanding how to work outside of a spacecraft in zero-g, but some portion of this class had never been involved in Gemini and were instead destined for Apollo. And finally, in 1965, NASA had recruited another class of six astronauts who recruited specifically for their training as scientists and who would never be expected to fly on Gemini. Similarly, the organization of the Flight Operations Directorate had expanded beyond just the current flight program. Of course, the first couple years of Gemini had also been an exciting time for NASA flight controllers as they moved their day-to-day -day operations and the actual mission control center itself from Langley, Virginia and Kennedy Space Center to their own permanent home at the Manned Space Flight Center in Houston. And as you'll recall, the opening of the new Mission Control Center actually corresponded to the start of the Gemini program in the spring of 1965. It's fair to say that the Gemini program and the Flight Operations Directorate had kind of grown up together over the last few years. Together, they had taken the base provided by the Mercury program and had more or less invented um, the profession of being a spaceflight mission controller. Along the way, the flight controllers had also learned that they had a significant role to play during the development of hardware that they would fly, and not just in the plans and procedures for how it would be used. Increasingly, it was, had become clear over the last four years that the experience and expertise of those that sat on console and had to make things work on orbit was invaluable to those who were planning the program and designing and building the hardware that would fly. And so, operations had grown from basically the single shift of flight controllers, who worked every shift in the Mercury Control Center, and who all sat in that single room, to an organization encompassing hundreds of engineers and technicians who were not only capable of providing real-time flight control support to space missions 24 hours a day for two weeks at a time, but also for providing first-line analysis, engineering, and simulation support during those flights, as had been demonstrated on Gemini 7 when a group in St. Louis at McDonnell Aircraft had actually set up and run a fuel cell test to help predict the behavior of the cranky cell on orbit, and which had eventually helped NASA successfully complete the mission. Increasingly, then, the Flight Operations Director was becoming much more than simply a home of flight control, it was also becoming a center of expertise in the art and science of living and working in space, and increasingly managing its own analysis and simulation resources, which were essential to preparing to work in an environment which those controllers were rapidly becoming familiar with, but which was still demanding, unforgiving, and largely unknown. And so the Flight Operations Directorate personnel were becoming involved much earlier in the Apollo program, and increasingly some parts of the directorate were devoted to working on Apollo and not on Gemini at all. And so NASA on the verge of 1966 genuinely was moving on beyond not only its early exploratory days of Mercury, but it was in fact actually moving on beyond Gemini towards the organization that would eventually go to the moon. 
But still, what of Gemini itself? Where did it stand as it looked forward to its second and final year of flight operations? Well, as we can see, halfway through its flight program, Gemini had made a lot of progress on its major objectives. The first of these had always been rendezvous and docking, and Gemini 6A and 7 had finally checked that box, at least partially. Uh, despite the odyssey that had been required to get there, NASA had completed a successful rendezvous mission. And it had gone well. In fact, the actual rendezvous had gone so well that it almost felt like an anticlimax. And maybe there is a lesson there, too, about the fact that success is often not about solving the big obvious problem. Sometimes it's about creating the condition and the organization and the culture that's capable of solving the problem, so that ultimately the big hairy deal doesn't seem as big or hairy as it did starting out. At any rate, NASA felt like it had cracked the code of on-orbit rendezvous that had evaded them so obviously the first few times they had experimented with it. Now, granted, they still needed to complete a full docking between two spacecraft to call it successful, but the big unanswered question about whether or not it could be done at all seemed to have been answered in the affirmative, which, in 1966, was still a big relief to a lot of people around NASA, in particular the Apollo program, that had gone all in on the lunar rendezvous mission design that required not one but three separate rendezvous operations. Gemini had definitively answered its second big question about whether it was possible for humans to live and work in space for long enough to get to the moon and back. The Gemini 7 crew had lived in space for almost double the length of time that should be required for any of the Apollo missions. They had not been comfortable, but they had been fully effective for the whole flight. And by the time the calendar clicked over to 1966, after a couple of weeks on the ground, they seemed to have recovered pretty much completely. The Gemini program had also proven that it was possible to design and build a spacecraft that could survive for two weeks in space. And while Gemini 7 had proven that it was not ever going to become routine, uh, that there would always be anomalies and struggles, uh, and that the longer the flight lasted, the more opportunities there would be for those things to appear, the fact of the matter was that the spacecraft was still functional after 14 days of use on orbit. In particular, Gemini 7 proved that NASA had achieved at least competence, if not mastery, when it came to the chemical black magic embodied in the fuel cell technology that was essential to flying a mission long enough to get to the moon and back. I mean, the fuel cell te technology seemed to provide new learning opportunities with every flight, but at least by Gemini 7, the NASA engineers were learning that even when the system didn't perform exactly to specification, there was now enough expertise available to understand what was happening and accurately predict the system's performance. Gemini had also proven pretty convincingly on the last two flights that controlled re-entry was also possible. Uh, both Gemini 7 and Gemini 6 had been actively flown during re-entry, both by the astronauts and the automatic flight control system. Now, this did not represent the level of control that had been hoped for when the program had been experimenting with the paraglider rescue system. And while the recovery still consisted of having to land in water and be recovered by U.S. Navy assets, at least Gemini now had a solid track record of being able to get a spacecraft back from orbit in the same ocean as the recovery group. 
And actually, the last two flights had actually both landed within sight of their recovery car carrier, giving some confidence that the recovery of spacecraft would not require the mobilization of the U.S. military across half the globe. Finally, or rather, kind of firstly, Gemini had proven that it was at least possible for humans to work outside of their spacecraft, having demonstrated that capability graphically during Ed White's epic spacewalk back on Gemini 3. Truth be told, though, this last capability, while it had been the cause of some major celebration, was probably the capability that NASA had explored the least. They had thrown together the EVA task at literally the last moment before Gemini 3, and while it had been a huge success, it had also been the cause for some significant concern when the crew had worked themselves to physical exhaustion in order to get the hatches closed at the end of the event. Um, the episode had caused enough concern for flight controllers, mission managers, and astronauts that no one had been in a hurry to open the hatches again on any of the subsequent Gemini missions. But, perhaps, more importantly, was that Gemini now had five crewed missions under its belt. It had flown them in a little under nine months. In that time, NASA had doubled the number of human spaceflights it had flown. It had multiplied the amount of time that Americans had spent on orbit by more than a factor of ten. At the end of Mercury, NASA's time on orbit had stood at barely two days. By the end of Gemini 7, it was up to almost a month. And maybe more to the point, the pace of flights that NASA had sustained over the last nine months, and which would continue for the next 11 months, was a cadence that would not often, if ever, be equaled in NASA's history, meaning, in effect, that by this point in the Gemini program, NASA had become an organization that was as capable as it would ever be of supporting the process of getting humans into orbit, keeping them there, and returning them safely to the surface. And that may be Gemini's greatest legacy for 1965, in fact. But, as we have been saying, in 1966, Gemini was certainly not done. In some ways, the end was in sight, but there was still a long way to go until Gemini could declare mission complete. And so, we'll continue taking a look at Gemini's journey the next time on Terranauts. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.